Science communication comes in all mediums, from filmmaking to journalism and even Dungeons and & Dragons, and Sharmini Vindel does it all. Sharmini is an award-winning filmmaker, a writer and a journalist, working on Nature's YouTube channel, podcast and magazine online. She's also one of the members of RP Geeks, combining Dungeons & Dragons with science. Join us as we speak about Sharmini's journey through science and science media production, her introduction to Dungeons & Dragons, and combining her broad skill set to both science communication and the creative arts. I'm Michelle Ong, and this is Steam Powered. Good morning, Sharmini. Thank you so much for joining me today on Steam Powered. I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about your amazing journey. Hi, <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah. So you are many things in several spaces, which I love <laughs> because you are applying, <laughs> yeah, you're applying your writing, directing, performing skill sets in science, filmmaking, and tabletop and theatre, like totally maxing out all those points right there. Too, too many things. <laughs> Indeed. Yes, correct. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> yeah. So you're currently doing some really awesome things with making science films with nature and other communication stuff, but- you started off in zoology. So yeah. Yeah, why zoology? So undergrad was basically zoology. It was technically natural sciences. And I had always liked, I'd grown up on the David Attenborough films. You know, my dad loves all that kind of stuff, loves nature and wildlife. So I definitely assumed I'd go into that kind of thing. Maybe like I was pretty into evolution. But actually when it came to choosing my third year modules, they ended up being really strongly like paleontology. Um, so there are a couple of like tetrapod evolution ones which just ended up being like a huge amount of detail about like early tetrapods you know four-legged creatures like coming onto land and like which ones are tiktalic and acanthostega and yeah i did get really into that i mean i've always been to dinosaurs dinosaurs are cool but yeah a lot more paleontology than i thought which was it was just it was just like whatever was interesting at the time really that was how i kind of chose my modules what i kind of fancied doing yeah yeah so how did you go from that to science media production? Like what yeah. prompted that change? This whole field of science communication, it's, it's a thing. I didn't know it was a, did you know it was a thing? I just thought that kind of came as part of the job. Like at some point people are going to ask you to talk about it and it just comes naturally. <laughs> yeah, it's like its whole own thing. It's whole separate thing. And then and there's, you know, there's science communication that you do as a working scientist. And then there's just science communication that you just like, I'm not even going to do the science. I'm just going to do the science communication. Other than being like, should I go be a wildlife filmmaker? Which was definitely a thought, but like not a very realistic thought, I feel. <laughs> like I had a camcorder and sometimes I used to crawl over the grass trying to film rabbits. And be like, yeah, I'm, I'm a I'm a filmmaker. <laughs> But I was like, no, no, that's not what real, like, I have no idea how you would do that. That's not what real people do for jobs. So I was just looking for like masters and PhDs after I did my undergrad. I was like, right, one, one does a PhD. That's what one does. Okay, fine. I'll go look for one. I was like, oh, I don't know what PhD to do. I'll do a master's first and get into it. So I was looking up sort of evolutionary behavior and just sort of general evolution or style masters. And I just came across this masters at Imperial, which was science communication or science media production. And I was like, that's a thing you can like learn academically. What? Could I? I, <laughs> I have those skills. 
that applies to me. I can do that. And like academia is something I'm very familiar with. So if someone said, oh, go out and get a job. Here's how you do it. I'd be like, no, no, don't have to do that. But a master's course, I'm like, yes. Would you like me to write essays and get high grades? Because this is what I've been practicing for. <laughs> and that that was the way into like, hey, did you know there's a whole world of things you can do with a science degree that aren't either academia or industry? And it sort of opened it up. And filmmaking was the one that I was sort of focusing on and that I ended up going into mostly. So, you know, what drew you in particular to the filmmaking side of science communication? When I was little, my mum had like a department camera. So it was very exciting. It was kind of like we would never have bought a family camcorder at that point because it was like quite early days. But she had this camcorder that was borrowed from work that I used. And like we would make films. And this is where like the writing and the theatre that is one of my hobbies, as you mentioned earlier. And it all sorts of ties together because I, I wrote a script for a murder mystery and then made my friends film the murder mystery and we all had different characters and it was about the acting, but I wanted to film it. And that was with zero editing. That was filming it on the camera in order with very dodgy scene cuts because every time you press record on the camera, it would just go back a fraction of a second. So you had to leave a fraction of a second onto the end of your scene, but not too long, otherwise it'd be really weird pause. So I'd been doing ridiculous stuff. And then I got a camcorder for my 21st birthday and I filmed all sorts of stuff, made little music videos of our friends hanging about. We made silly, very silly films, as you can imagine, spoofs of things. And it really was this like messing around and then getting like the basic editing skills that I never in a million years thought would ever be relevant, let alone like my profession now is mostly <laughs> video editing. It was just a silly hobby. And and the I wanna I was gonna say kids these days. I'm like, oh no, I'm sounding really kids old. These days. But like <laughs> Yeah. But, but genuinely, kids these days are growing yeah, up with back so much then more... we had to edit through the snow and sleet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Down <laughs> mines. Eight hours a day, exactly. But no, you have the access these days and people do that as not necessarily as a hobby, but if you're there like making TikToks or even just sort of for Instagram, like that kind of media is a lot more normal to just have a go at doing and leading up to developing skills that, yeah, for me, I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's my job now. Hmm. <laughs> it's just such a really cool progression because yeah, it, it was part of the thing that you used to do as a hobby. It's like, yeah, let's incorporate that into making right. a living out of it. Yeah, it, it's very neat, and you know, I'm sure a lot of people really would love that kind of journey for themselves. <laughs> I mean, it's lucky, yeah, to be able to be able to do that and, and to be able to do things you enjoy is lucky anyway. Let alone sort of combine combine different things. Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, you're making all these very very cool videos for nature on YouTube, yeah. and I love all of the kind of topics that you're able to touch on yeah. like, it's a wide range it's not like you're kind of pinned yeah. to any particular topic and you know just recently you did one called the sandcastle economy yeah, sandcastle film <laughs> i just like that i get to make films about sandcastles it's great i know and while you're building all those sandcastles <laughs> you're talking about all this very cool important stuff as well because i guess for me personally i've been noticing a lot more coverage about the sand crisis and you know singapore's mm. sand imports for land reclamation oh. and sand mafias and all the ecological impact of that yeah. like, that's a really cool topic so you know how do you decide what sort of topics you're going to be creating for the channel yeah well so we're pretty lucky at nature so nature's obviously a big sort of broad scientific journal that covers a lot of like not not 
everything, but it does cover a lot of areas of science. So generally what we do is look at papers that are like due to be published and being sort of internal, we kind of get access and then can pick and choose. And like there are just papers that come out that either they have the sort of supplementary information videos with them anyway that have been provided, or you just read the research topic and you're like, I bet someone filmed that. Either because it's about slow motion footage giving you the insights into what's going on or whoever was in the lab that day. Surely they'd have filmed it because it's cool. So yeah, so it's great. So we just get our pick. It's a very, nice. you know, it's a very, yeah, <laughs> nice position to be in within nature that we've got this little sort of multimedia team and we can just choose what films we want to cover. But also, you know, we want to create a, we've got other priorities, right? We want to create a balance. Let's not only cover the papers about the robots, even though YouTube loves the films about the robots. <laughs> you know, there's a limit, right? Let's let's have some biology. Let's have some physics. Let's try and, you know, there are topics that are harder to cover in video. So if we get a cell paper with cool video of cells where you can see what's going on, let's like take the opportunity to cover that field. If we have money, let's take the opportunity to do an animation and do something weird that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do, I don't know, particle physics or something that they really film that well. Not, not <laughs> so great enough. when it comes to the particle physics. So yeah, that kind of thing informs our choices. That is very cool. You know, I, I love that kind of idea of the creative process behind making all of these things because a lot of science doesn't film very well. So, you know, being able to come up with ways of making that work and... Got to be creative. Convey, yes. Yeah, you got to be creative about Absolutely. the way that you convey that information. It's very neat. Which is really fun. And in film, there are loads of options. So, like, this this Sandcastle film wasn't initially about sand. It was supposed to be out this sort of whole, whole concept of the circular economy, which wasn't something I was familiar with. And I was like, this sounds very dry. It's sort of like, you know, how can we go beyond recycling and make everything that we use part of this sort of circular system where it doesn't go to waste in a landfill at the end of its use, but it's constantly being sort of cycled through. And I was like, eh, yeah, I mean, that's really important, but we kind of hash that to death a bit. <laughs> yeah. And how do you also, how do you highlight that it's, you know, everyone's like, oh, recycling, oh, that's a glamorous topic. You know, <laughs> you kind of shush it up a bit. And, you know, the sand crisis is sort of loosely related in that the circular economy is something that you can use to preserve sand, to have less sand waste, that's sort of needing less sand. And sand is used in the construction industry. And that led to the idea of like, okay, well, let's hire an artist to build a sand sculpture of a city. You know, this film is like, you've got your experts going, hey, the circular economy is really important. When we're building things, here's what we can do. But the visuals, what you're seeing is a sculptor creating a sort of skyscraper out of sand and then it being sort of knocked down at the end and reused again and the sort of metaphor for reuse and recycling um, and that that was a really we were lucky to have the budget to be able to afford an artist properly but yeah it's really nice to be able to film something that isn't the obvious and that can be more creative and, and visual and interesting absolutely and yeah as you said you know recycling there's only so much you can take with it. And this is such a, it, this is a unique angle of being able to demonstrate, look, this is other stuff that doesn't get easily recycled and all the kind of stuff about materials and the way that, you know, we can kind of closer loop in a lot of these things. It, it's cool being able to see 
all these other things being kind of cycled back through into the system. But it's not something that you think about normally because you're building. That's yeah. it. You tear it down, done. Yeah. So being able to give that perspective and illustrating that with the sandcastles was novel. I really did enjoy that. <laughs> yeah, being yeah. able to make different things out of sand rather than filming like a building site and some demolition and a train. It's just like, we're just going to build all those out of sand. But that's, you know, that's the visuals. They're talking about it. You're seeing it. You're just seeing the sand version. So it ties, it also, you know, it ties the whole film together thematically as well. Um, you've got this sort of visual through line that's that's quite nice and sort of consistent. Sand everywhere. Yeah, and such a great use of your skill set, you know, being able to create all of these sorts of aspects and pull them all together. It's nice. So with all these videos, you get to pick and choose your projects. Are you kind of building them in parallel with other projects at the same time because of how long it takes to make them? Or is it usually kind of serial? Well, they're supposed to be sort of overlapping slightly i feel like i'm not the most efficient because <laughs> if i get into one i get really caught up in it and my boss is like hey that other one's coming up and i'm like i'll do it i'll do it next week i'll do it next week and then i sort of <laughs> leave it until the last minute and i'm like oh no i'm gonna do that oh make a film make a film <laughs> but yeah there's some there's some degree of overlap and occasionally you get a few that are really big long projects like animations animation takes a while yeah. so that's gonna be several months and in the meantime while you're kind of waiting for that you know sometimes you've got like this is coming out next week we've got all the footage already all you got to do is like read it write a script understand it edit it together like two minute film go and i'm like yeah I can fit that in super super fast edit so yeah a little bit little bits of overlap so how do you tell like how can you gauge how long you have to create the video like whether it's going to be a two minute or a 10 minute or you know where do you hmm. where do you stop digging <laughs> Yeah, that's oh, that's that's a really interesting question that I've been wondering about a lot at work anyway, because when I, so I started at Nature, I want to say eight years ago, was it? Some, some, some time ago. <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> a little while. And at that point, I was very interested in videos for social media as well. And I don't know if, if you remember, there was this whole like Facebook pivot to video nonsense where Facebook were massively pushing like Facebook video their stats weren't really comparable with anyone else's stats so they just made it look better but the point is that they were genuinely their algorithm was pushing the video in front of people whether people were watching or not was another question but they were very keen on it so I was kind of like yeah yeah social media is where a whole different audience is off YouTube you know let's make things that can work there as well and that was very, very pushing short form. So we would do, I would say our standard was a three minute video. We would do a voiceover. We'd have enough sort of footage to fill three minutes with a bit of repetition. Maybe you'd have to buy a bit of stock footage to illustrate it. Three minute video, boom, done. Neat little science explanation. That's gotten notably, our average has gotten notably longer over the years. We still sometimes do two or three minute really snappy snappy quick videos but various things have changed youtube is definitely favoring longer videos i think people are more interested it's you know it's not just the algorithm it's responding to to what the audience wants people are more interested in longer form videos like the things people are watching are like really longer form like 15 30 plus minutes which we don't do you know our averages are going up to six or seven and then you know, we'll more often do like a 10 or 12 minute video, which 
when I started would have been like, oh my gosh, he's got time for that. Whereas now it's like, yeah, if the story justifies it, if it keeps your attention, you know, it really should be about the story to some extent about like how much, you know, there is to say while sort of keeping the pacing. Because some some stories are really short and snappy, or at least like the level that you want to tell it at is short and snappy. And it gets to a point where you're like, oh, well, if we were to start digging deeper into X, we'd have to make it twice as long and have a whole section about X topic, which we don't have the footage for. So right, let's leave that. Whereas other things, you know, let's let this interviewee talk about some topic. And the other the other thing that's changed is that post-pandemic, we are much more likely to include Zoom interviews or video calls like this in our films because... It's normal now. <sighs> it is normal. Yeah, I mean, it is normal. I was going to say, like, people have tend to have, like, slightly nicer kit as well, although not <laughs> scientists that interview have terribly nice setups. But they are, they are used to doing it. People are used to seeing it. If we put out a film and instead of like a perfectly like shot sit down interview with like lights and camera, it's just like, hi, I'm clearly on a slightly dodgy video call. Like people aren't going to be like, this is so unprofessional. What quality <laughs> of footage are you putting in your film? People are like, oh yeah, video calls. And then we happen. So which also enables you to make a film longer, right? Because now you've got someone talking to you. You can see their face while talking. You don't have to cover it all with footage because it's just a voiceover. Like you can... You can watch them. They can sort of give more sort of interesting little insights. Yeah, that's a very cool perspective about that because, yeah, it's true. Like people are a bit more forgiving of a lack of polish in some of this content just because they're used to the fact that we've had to make do with video calls. <laughs> that's cool. I like that. That's a very interesting bit of insight. <laughs> oh, my secrets. <laughs> give my way to secrets. Oh, no. Give it away. <laughs> Anyone can do what you do now. <laughs> I hope they do. Yes, I mean they can though. Like, just get your smartphone out and some free video editing software, and like learn those skills because they can. They can do it. So accessible now. Yeah. So moving on to a different type of storytelling, let's talk about D and D. We should always talk about D and D. This is yeah. You think this is a science show? <laughs> I'm just here to, under the radar, convert all your audience into actually mega D and D fans. That's that's my real aim. <laughs> your secret plan and speaking of that conversion because you i saw on your bio where you said you discovered dnd while drunk at a bus stop and i would really oh, yeah, love to know more <laughs> where did i write that yeah no that's absolutely yeah, that was great so dnd dungeons and dragons for anyone who who isn't aware it's a tabletop role-playing game it involves some dice so, you know this is what the kids play on on stranger things typically very fantasy themed and involves a lot of role-playing. So unsurprisingly, I came to it through drama and theatre. That was my, like, my my main staple hobby for years and years and years since school. It was like doing plays and musicals. Love that. So the night of the drunken bus stop D&D was the after-show party for a pantomime that I'd written. You guys know what panto is, right? Like, because it feels very British and I'm always like... So they would know what I'm talking about. Well, we are kind of in a colony, but I don't know about the rest of the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. Do you guys have pantos? Yes. So one of my guests was actually one of uh, founding members of the Panto Society in one of the oh, universities really? here. So yes, we do have Panto. I don't know how widespread oh. it is, but it does exist. That's awesome. Oh, man. Yeah. 
Because I always thought, like, in America and stuff, they're usually a bit like, oh, this is a weird thing. Ah, awesome. Yeah, love a panto. Yeah, it's great. And these are very, these are really musical, highly musical ones as well. So um, get some musical theatre in there, lots of singing and dancing. But after show party, I've written it and directed it. A bunch of the cast are there. And, and everyone's starting to go home from the pub. And we're like, no, what? The party's not over. We need more party. At which point the, um, the, was he the prince? Or the, 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 <laughs> yeah, it was kind of the prince. The queen's brother. Yeah. Anyway. Still a prince. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was the prince. He was the, it was the, the it's a, a, a sub prince of, of not the main prince was like, hey guys, come back to my house and play D&D. And I was like, what? Okay, I'm sure. Okay, well, I don't want to like get the night bus, go back to your house, sit down, start playing a game. Like, can we <laughs> start now on the way to the bus stop? Can we just go? He's like, yeah, yeah, great. So he had like on his phone, like a dice roller on his phone and you press it and you see the little animation of the dice go. And he was like, right, all you're all the characters <laughs> you are, are your characters from the panto. Pre-rolled characters, nice. <laughs> yeah. One of the narrators was there. The uh, huntsman was there. One like ensemble member played a frog in one scene. It's like, yeah, you're a frog now. That's your character. <laughs> and I was the director. So I didn't have a character. So I was like, my name's Di. Di, the director. <laughs> I'm just a little hobbit with a frying pan, you know, in, in top Lord of the Rings fashion. Yep. Um, and it was great. And it was just very, very silly and exciting and we started a sort of ongoing game out of that where we would all get together and playing those same characters one of those characters still exists <laughs> in a camp in a sort of different campaign that's ongoing even now that's awesome I and that's how i discovered the fun yeah bus stop live improv D. that's great exactly <laughs> exactly and it is, again, it's one of these things where I'm like, oh, this is all of my interests and skills. It's got the improv, it's got the acting, it's kind of got the writing as well, because you're kind of like, you're all telling the story together. I was like, this is great. And then, and then the dressing up. I've gotten quite into dressing up recently. I'm That's like, important. Wow, I get to dress up for this, and like, be yeah. my character. And I bought wigs and everything over lockdown. It was lockdown. People, people had some, got some weird interests over hobbies and mine was, was sort of cosplay. I have a lot of wigs now. It's great. Would recommend. That's awesome. Well, it's not a leap. <laughs> no, it's not. I do, yeah, it's not. Yeah, but yeah, I'm enjoying that. Absolutely. And like, you got super into D&D because obviously reasons, but why start streaming your sessions and making them educational? Like, where did that come in? Are they educational? Oh, no. I, we don't really use the word educational. Now I'm like, oh, educational, but like in a cool way. No, education is cool. Education <laughs> is cool, kids. Yeah. So I, yeah. So I got into these various like tabletop role playing games. It's not just D&D, but various things. And then I'd be like running them for different people and in different games. And I did some at work, like after work, we would stay on for a few hours, like I'd find a little meeting room and do one shots that just would be like a one one parter sort of standalone story of an evening and uh, a guy who was working with us at the time Ali Jennings came to me and was like Sharmini we need to do science D&D and I'm like what do we like what okay and he but, you know he was just like yeah yeah no this is this is a thing we weren't really sure how that would work or or whether that would work <laughs> I think I was pretty skeptical at the start, but Ali really pushed it. I was like, what are we going to, who's going to do it? Who, who's going to like 
DM these stories that involve science. And Ali's like, I will. This is from like playing D&D for the first time the other day. And I'm like, okay, great. Bold. I like it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And he's so good. And I'm like, damn, how are you so good? But we got a group together. We're all basically science filmmakers. So my friend Emily Bates, I also met doing musicals. She was in that show actually as well. I, she wasn't playing <laughs> D&D at bus stop with us, but she was also in that show. So I've done lots of acting with her before. And she's also a science filmmaker working in sort of TV and for new scientists and things like that. And then Ali knew this guy called Simon Clark, Dr. Simon Clark, who's a YouTuber. And he has like this whole YouTube yeah. channel where, again, like long form stuff. And he's also done Twitch streaming. And it all sort of came together with the sort of relevant skills and everything and and we sort of designed a format for playing a game and talking about the science that came up in the game we we kind of we skinned a sci-fi which makes it slightly easier so rather than fantasy setting and then everything that we do so you know in in D, you have rules of like you know i cast sleep on you and this species has excellent night vision dark vision and so we were like, you know, at the beginning of every episode or every other sort of section, we will, someone will do a little explanation of like, if you wanted to cast sleep in real life or like in this sci-fi world, how does that work? Like, what are you doing? Are you manipulating their brain waves? Is it some kind of drug? Go in, do some research and like bring us back some fun facts. All the same with dark vision, like, okay, what creatures have adapted to see in the dark? How could we use that in our world to explain how it works? Yep. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I like that. The funny things that occasionally when I'll be watching stuff with my husband, I'll kind of say, can we pause for a sec? I want to talk about this for a moment. (laughs) He hates it it so much. But how does this work with the science? Well, the most recent thing, we were watching Keanu Reeves' 47 Ronin, and it's based on a Japanese story about 47 samurai who have to go avenge Mm -hmm. their lord. But that film Japan had demons and witches and magic and stuff like that and there was a one main witch there who was using her magic for deception and you know meddling with people's heads making them do stupid things oh nice i said to him can we hit pause for a sec i I really need to talk about this could japan have developed that culture of honor and dishonor and that strong thing about the way that trust is developed when you've got this massively overpowered magic where you can manipulate mm. people's minds to make them do things. How do you have mm. an honor-based culture when you can't trust what's going on? Or, or alternatively, you could create an alternate history for a culture where that's why it's so important. Yeah. Because you know you can't actually trust even your own mind. So all you have is that sense of duty. And like that's all you sort of can rely on. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting. To, it, it's really nice building like worlds like that where, you know, the important thing is they have their own consistent rules. You know, I mean, it's a sort of classic sci-fi fantasy world building. But, you know, let's think about a world where you have this magic, that certain people have this magic. What does that lead to? What are the norms now in that world that's different from ours? It's really interesting. It's the fun part. This is the fun part of world building. <laughs> so how do you like DMing? <laughs> DMing? Yeah, DMing's all right. I'm not very good at it yet. I'm still, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I feel like, you know, on the one hand, anyone can do it. Like I DM one shots all the time. And especially when it's like people who haven't played before. I think they have a great time and 
I can facilitate that great time and be part of it. So that's really enjoyable. But I am not like, I can't do it to exactly how I want it. <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, no, I need to get better at this so I can really sort of like craft and tell the stories I want with the players and enable them to have those great moments. So yeah, I tend to do one shots and I'm running one campaign and it's really, it's really getting away from me. They haven't even got to the instigating factor of instigating event of the main, like, second part of the plot yet. Because things keep happening. And I'm like, oh. So, you know, I'm developing my skills of, like, having no control over what's happening and not pushing it forward very well. And, you know, trying to figure out what I like. Herding cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, like, I could herd strictly. But there is a balance between, like you know, railroading the story to go exactly where you want and like having complete freedom for the characters to like discover and create their own story. So still working out the balance here. Yeah, it's a tough one. I know that our friend who used to DM for us a lot struggled with that greatly because he would just hair off and he would just go, no, for the love of God, I've planned this really well. Can you just... The plot! Yes. Can you just please follow my plot? I just want to get to the next section. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's challenging. It's really interesting, interesting skills. Yeah, I really, I do really enjoy playing, especially in, in long campaigns and just being responsible for just like my section yeah. of the story of like what my sort of character's arc and journey is, things like that, and relationships. Absolutely. Well, that's, it's fun. Like no matter what capacity it is, it's always going to be fun. And, you know, we're winding back a bit. Because you do try to work science into your campaigns for the sciencey bit, do you feel you have to modify the way you play it up to have the stuff or do you just run with it and, you know, the science will come? It definitely is in our mind because our rule is anything that you do, you have to explain using science or you have to be able to vaguely plausibly explain. So when we are picking things, I think we did do one episode on this, we tend to like avoid teleportation spells <laughs> because we're just like, oh no. What is this? Is this just like faster than light travel? Is it a wormhole? Like what? <laughs> how? How does Misty Step work? What do you mean you dimension door over there? Oh God. So I feel like there's a slight sort of cheating of like, if something's hard, it's like, oh, I'm not pick that and then I won't have to explain it. Yes. And I definitely pick things that fit in with the vibe of your character. Mm. Like, so you might be like an ice witch and then you only pick cold themed spells or whatever, whatever. So I pick spells that could plausibly be explained by some sort of like telepathic manipulation because that's my character's thing is that there's this sort of colony of microorganisms i was very sort of like slime mold inspired where they're kind of individual cells but they're also sort of part of a larger macroorganism and these organisms i sort of say okay these organisms are floating everywhere in the air and they have sort of electromagnetic charges and they can sort of manipulate the electromagnetic field to some extent, maybe they could act sort of like an ECG, sort of like both from sort of just externally, both reading out and also potentially manipulating brainwaves from the surface. So then I'm like, okay, right. So what, what spells should I pick? You know, so something like phantasmal force, a spell that makes the other person have a, a vision of something. I'm like, right, that's clearly a sort of psychic-y psychically themed thing so yeah it does it does sort of influence it in that way that is very cool i do like that that works really really well it's nice and creepy so she's an aberrant mind sorcerer and it's yeah. all like creepy psychic stuff 
And I quite like because, you know, I've taken like detect thoughts where you can like, read people's minds mm. and things, you can influence them. And those kind of it's it's very like morally problematic <laughs> in D&D, all of these sort of mind control things. Because in D&D, you generally play good guys. It's like, hi, we're the heroes. <laughs> but sometimes you have these spells and you're like, hmm, I really just, yeah, getting into your head and manipulating your brain that so that you like me or so that you want to do something like, that's not cool, heroes. That's not a good guy behavior. So I quite like, you know, I've sort of built a character where it's not sort of portrayed as a sort of good and heroic thing. Mm. She doesn't like these powers, but like people want her to use them and she ends up using them. And, you know, she can't get away from this, like this super organism that she's kind of part of. And if she doesn't kind of release the energy of the magic, like it sort of like builds up and and then sort of like releases by itself. So I just kind of like tied it all in there with the sort of creepy, creepy psychic vibes. That's such a good way of crafting the story around it because, yeah, D&D, all these sorts of things, you're going to hit morally grey. And even if you were, if, even if it's not just for D&D, it creates such amazing questions for, you know, the way science, ethics and magic works. I like it anyway. Mm. <laughs> Again, like, in yeah, in that world, like, what are the penalties for charming someone? Yeah. Like, they're going to be pretty high because, you know, that's... It's a violation. <laughs> yeah, like psychically manipulating. At the lowest level, it's a violation. And at the highest level, it's like, well, you don't want your leaders or officials to be just swayed by whoever comes along with a spell. So, yeah. I imagine it's a pretty big deal in those worlds. Like, what is the what are the real world consequences in our fantasy world? Like, what would they be? And, and they might be you're getting arrested for, for being a criminal. Stop doing crime, people. Well, there's the writer coming up right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, I guess we should start winding up. This has been very awesome. I could talk to you about D and D all night, <laughs> but let's move on to those other bits. So, what hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your field of work? So yes, yeah, so my field of work, making films about science, I would say probably the least related to that is musical theatre. I'm trying to write a musical at the moment. I could just write a musical about science and then I would join them up, but, <laughs> but no, no, I've got to stop. I've got to stop mixing everything with science. So for the moment, musical theatre, it's great. Love musicals. That's cool. And it's such a different kind of area of your brain to use because yeah, Music is entirely different. Do you score it yourself? No, yeah. I, I do the chords. I, <laughs> I play the chords, blinky blonky chords, and then I sing, and then I give it to an actual musician, and then they make it actually proper. <laughs> and put better chords on too, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's all a short of improvement. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very cool. I could spend a lot more time talking about that too. Okay. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Um, yeah, you sent me this question in advance and I was like, what? You want me to pick? Oh, no, this is terrible. <laughs> but the one thing that I thought, this is interesting. Okay, it's tenuously related to women in STEM. Okay, this is my <laughs> I read a lot of older fiction with that sort of Victorian or like 19, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s stories. So I'm thinking like Enid Blyton. I'm thinking Chronicles of Narnia. And I think they really 
influenced my sort of understanding of gender and gender roles in a really like both positive and negative way, I would say, because Ina Blyton in particular has a very strong line of, you know, the girls have to stay home and be safe and the boys get to go out and do adventures. And on the one hand, that did turn me into quite a little mini feminist of like, that's not fair. I want, I want to go and have <laughs> the adventures. Like, what? Oh, this sucks. So that was nice. But on the other hand, it, there's also, this isn't all in the button, but I'm thinking something like, something like the famous five where you've got like the tomboy character and then you've got like the girly character and they're all like the heroes of the book. But it, for me, it was very much like, oh, no one wants to be girly. Being Girl is the worst. That means you don't go anywhere and you want to keep your dress clean and you don't climb things. Like clearly being a tomboy is the coolest. And it took me a long while to sort of realise the internalised misogyny in that. And I was like, oh no. Oh, I'm a horrible sexist person. Because like, I'm just like, yeah, pink frilly things, that's bad. Being feminine is bad. And I'm like, oh God. Oh no. So, you know, be careful what books you're reading because... It gets in your brain in ways that you don't that you don't realise until you're an adult and yep. you have to unpack everything that's going on with you. <laughs> Absolutely. So it was a funny thing because I love Enid Blyton. I, I read so much Enid Blyton yeah. when I was growing up. And when I had my daughter, I was thinking, Enid Blyton, let's introduce her to that. And I knew, like, I knew that there was going to be stuff there and I figured we'll talk about that. That's fine because the way that she is is entirely different. And I found... Two copies of the same book, one of them published before 1990 and one published recently. They have edited it. It is very different now. They have. I mean, I think that's good. Yes and no. So they have sanitized quite a bit of the stuff to do with the sexism and the misogyny. And it's now a little bit more neutral. Oh, gosh. And I thought that was fascinating. I I need to see what they've done with all of these because so many things have changed the way, like, there was one where the girls were sent to help the mum do the housework and the boy was sent to go help the dad and they'd adjusted that. And it's like, "Eh, yeah, fascinating. And they changed the names. Like obviously Fanny was changed to Franny because apparently Fanny was a problem, but that's okay. Fanny's a great name. Poor Fanny. (laughs) Oh, lucky Fanny. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of torn about that because I feel like, but if you want to like be able to just like give these books to your kids, I think changing them is better because it keeps them usable as their original intent which is just like stories for, for for children as opposed to becoming a sort of like here's a sort of historical insight that we need to then discuss and you know that you need that sort of adult input to say like hey let's talk about this yeah. this is not yeah i did see some people on twitter the other day going on about like, susan from chronicles of narnia as well which was like such a big thing did you read all those ones like in the last battle at the very end of the series. I heard about the discussion, but I didn't see it. Yeah, it's it re- that really like got to me as well. At the very end of the series, they all... It's all a weird religious analogy, so it's yes. kind of weird. But like Susan, it, w- it was very explicitly that she wasn't there because she got into boys and makeup. Like, really, like really, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure wow. it's just that simple, is this, that she was interested in boys and makeup, and therefore she was kind of like... It was kind of like she was an adult, and therefore no longer sort of like believed in Narnia, maybe. But it was it's also obviously just hugely just like sexuality is evil, which <laughs> for a Christian analogy. Maybe that's not so shocking. No. Yeah. But that one as well, it, it just has, you know, it's sending a very clear moral message as to what is 
good to to be interested in. We can't fight good and evil. Boys are more interesting as well as makeup. Oh, dear. Yeah. And yeah, it's just for ages. I was like, oh, makeup. That's the devil's work. Well, as an atheist, but still, you know, <laughs> you can be an atheist and still have these like Christian values ingrained in you from your upbringing. And it's like, ah. So many things you really do have to unpack. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who would like to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? I think my advice is to be really open to sort of different things and opportunities. And I think in in ye olden days, you would have a vocation and you'd go into your job and you'd have a clear career path and that would be your career, your field. It'd be quite limited, just sort of a clear path. Focused. Yeah. And I think now, I think it is good not to have too strong an idea of exactly what you want to do because then you can be more open to different things. You know, like I saw this master's, I was like, oh, maybe I should do that. I thought like, oh, I have some sort of basic filmmaking experience. Maybe that's relevant. You know, I like writing. I read a lot of books when I was a little and I like writing stories. Maybe I can write scripts or maybe I can write articles. They were transferable skills. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like getting into exactly what I do is really difficult. If I'd set out to do it, I wouldn't have succeeded. But then again, I didn't know that it was an option and maybe I'd have ended up in some other related thing, which I was like, hey, this is, wow, I never knew this existed and this is perfect for me. And, you know, that's the alternate timeline, me, in some other, like, awesome job. I'm very optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) I have very awesome jobs. So, yeah, I think that's what I'd say. I'd think be open and try different things, try using different things. And also just decide, coming back right to what we talked about right at the beginning decide whether you want your job that is the one best job in the world your complete dream role that is everything you know that you have to work towards and maybe you have to work really hard or really long hours and you know it's constantly trying to get there or like once you've gotten a bit older <laughs> I'm sounding really old again you know maybe think about whether what you want is a sort of steady and stable job where you're happy and you know you feel like you're good at it and you've got regular hours so you can do your hobbies on the side and you can put your energy there as well that's a very valid option I would say it is now I think yeah as we get older it does come up you start thinking about where you need to head with this and how much you care about what you're doing as your primary income earning activity versus wanting to be able to balance it out and maybe take a job that's less specific to your career so that you can kind of explore other things. Yeah. yeah. So good things to reflect on. Yeah. I think having hobbies is really good. Like, as you know, I have several <laughs> as we've discussed and I really, really value that. That's a really important part of my life. So I wouldn't, I don't think I'd want to do a job that was really intense that meant I had no energy for anything else. Absolutely. Oh, well, yeah, that that's amazing. And thank you so much, Sharmini, for speaking with me today on Steampart. It's been absolutely wonderful hearing about your journey. Thank you, Michelle. And all your activities. And yeah, just how interested you are in all the stuff that you do at once. It's cool. It's <laughs> <laughs> been great. Yes, thank you, so, thank you so much for asking me and having me on. Yeah, it's been a pleasure having you. So if people would like to know more about what you do, where can they go? So, oh, good question. Various social medias. I actually have a website. Fancy that. Um, of course I do, yes. Sharmanybundell.wordpress.com. <laughs> there we go. I know my own website. 
and that has links to my social medias. I am at sbundell on Twitter and Instagram and shamini.b on TikTok. And I, I would encourage everyone to follow the RP Geeks as well at rpgeeksdnd if you're at all interested in, you know, science, role-playing games. We have fun one-shots as well as an ongoing campaign. Yeah, everyone should get into D&D. I think it enriches all our lives. <laughs> Cool. All right. So thank you again and hope you have an amazing rest of your day. Have an evening and I'll have a, I'll have a morning over on the other side of the world. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks. If you enjoyed this conversation, please let me know. Subscribe to the show, leave us a rating and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and the Steam Powered Show, the link for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time.